Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press. Sunbury Press publishes print, audio, and electronic books under 20 different imprints in a variety of categories sold worldwide wherever books are sold. At this time that we're on the air, Father's Day is just around the corner. This is a remarkable tale about two daughters who have found each other recently. Their fathers were friends during World War II, under the direst of circumstances. To that end, I want to introduce Oksana Lapchuk, who wrote the book about her father called The Journalist, A Holocaust Story, and Tanya Vujovic, who found the book on the Internet. When she read it, she realized her father was in the book, and this brought them together. Oksana and Tanya, welcome. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you very much. For- Thank you. Thank you very much. We're very happy to be here and share our story. Yeah, um, and I'm sure, I'm sure your fathers would be as well. Oksana, maybe you could, since you started this whole thing, why don't, why don't you give us the background on your book first? Okay. Um, I'd like to share how I wrote the book and why I wrote it. But this started about 11 years ago. It was in the month of May in 2010, and I had a dream that I gave birth to a beautiful, healthy baby. The baby was chunky, it laughed profusely, and while I was too old to have a child, I knew that God was speaking to me that he wanted me to bring something new into the world. And I knew it was to write a book about my father's Holocaust experience. And I had never even thought about it before that. So after I had the dream, I began to do a lot of research, uh, looking into things, and my journey led me through a series of circumstances to actually go back uh, and walk in my father's footsteps through the camps that he was in. So uh, I was able to connect with the Buchenwald Memorial Center with uh, a German lady who actually was a teacher and taught the Holocaust. And when we arrived there, uh, we went to the Holocaust uh, Memorial Center there at Buchenwald. And what they did was they already had all the documentation of my father's stay in all the different camps. And he stayed in four different camps, which, which I'll get into. So, um, so this is how the journey started. And, of course, uh, I went to a writer's conference, and that's where I met you, Lawrence, and you uh, decided that you wanted to publish the book. Now, Oksana, just to give to... a little background on myself, I, I grew up in a Ukrainian community in, in New York. I didn't speak English when I went to school. Um, however, I went to school to learn how to read and write in Ukrainian. And behold, in the 90s, I actually worked as an interpreter for various religious organizations in Ukraine and Israel, and I also have a Master's of Religious Education from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I worked in full-time ministry for a while and as a teacher and administrator. Uh, Oksana, uh, if you could, uh, I just wanted to interject about the Writers' Conference, if we could, just for a minute. So I... I believe we were in Orlando at the Florida Writers Conference, right? Or is it the Florida Writers Association? Right. And so this was one of those, um, what, you have two minutes or five minutes to... uh, Yeah, I think so. I think that's about what it was because you were seeing other people. Yeah, they call it like speed dating between between authors and publishers. And I remember when you sat down and the story that you had, right off the bat, I knew you were not someone who had written 20 books, but your story was so interesting. And the title, The Journalist, I immediately saw a movie in my head. So I was sold on you like in the first two seconds, just so you know, and I'll tell you that now. And I'm glad we were able to uh, get this under contract and get it out. And it's done fairly well. 
Well, well, thank you so much. And, I, and I'm going to let Tanya, because her story is very interesting, let her share her part of it. Well, first I just want to say thanks to Sunbury Press, because Oksana and I never would have met if she wouldn't have published her book through you. And kind of the, we've been comparing the differences and similarities between our fathers and ourselves. And something I have to say um, although I don't like the word envy, I'm very envious of Oksana in several ways. First, she grew up speaking Ukrainian, and secondly, her father was so prolific. I mean, I don't know how many books he wrote, but she's really carrying on his legacy by writing her book, The Journalist. Um, whereas my father, he, I did not grow up speaking Ukrainian, and I've kind of struggled to learn it. I'm, I'm much better now, um, but... And I've tried pretty much my whole life. Has path has been, I don't want to say dictated, but I've been searching for more information about my father because he really didn't talk about his wartime experiences or even his childhood that much. So I've kind of my life path has been led by looking for more information on my father's life because, like so many daughters, I think he was an incredible man. And after all the suffering he went through. He really had no resentment and such gratitude for being an American. And I think what really pushed me further was the birth of my son, who was born after my father passed away. But it kind of became even a greater purpose. I kind of felt what I wanted to do was for my son to know my father's story so that maybe some of the qualities that I so respected my father could be passed on to my son. But um, what Oksana's book really did for me was there have been several really turning points in my research, um, which has been endless. But I, I found a couple of her dad's books and was struggling through and found my father referenced in a couple of those. Um, but it was a paragraph. And, you know, whereas her father left thousands of pages, I was breathless when I found one paragraph in her father's book that referenced my father. Um, and what's even more remarkable about our story was, so I started looking for this Koval, Koval, Koval everywhere, and I was fortunate. Another breakthrough was the KGB files have been declassified, similar to the CIA files, although I think they held a lot more back than the CIA did, but who knows. Um, and in one of these files, um, it listed all the people that had attended a wedding. So the minute I found this Koval, I was trying to find him, Koval, 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 everywhere that I searched, and I could never find him. Bottom line, it was from Oksana's book. I, I got the Kindle version right away, and I discovered that her father's name was Trishevsky and not Koval. And my father went under a pseudonym, so when our fathers knew each other, it was uh, Anatoly Trishevsky and Yaroslav Stepovy, so they never really knew each other's post-war names. Um, because my father took back his real name after the war, and Oksana's father took, which I think, I think if she ever republishes her book, it's just the most touching story that her father after the war, discovered that his wife and two children had been killed or was told this, and that's how he took his name, Valentin Koval, because her name had been Valentina Koval. So for the rest of his life, he carried her with him, which I think is very beautiful. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. Well, Tanya, uh, what I'd like to do, I guess, uh, let me share my part of it, too. When... Tanya, I think this was like over a year ago, I think at the end of last December, she contacted me via messenger. And I was literally stunned uh, because I had no idea. Uh, this, uh, he's mentioned as Stefan, her father, on page 66. And that his actual name at the time was Yaroslav Stepovic, and my father put Stepovic, but I, I figured I'm not going to refer to a person by their last name, so I just extracted Stefan from it. But she knew right away that that was her father. And the interesting thing is both of them, in my first chapter of the book called The Arrest, they were both working for the uh, Ukrainian underground movement, 
which, uh, which was called Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. Now, her father originally, before the war, was studying to be a Catholic priest in Lviv, Ukraine. But when the war started, he uh, went to Kherson, which is the town where my father was from, and they actually uh, got involved there. My father was the editor of a newspaper called Voice of Dnipro, which is actually a river in Kiev, uh, which extends into Russia and another country. So their first publication came out in September 1941, and that was right around the time the Nazis took over. So my father was arrested, and her father was arrested. She'll share separately because he was, uh, I think he was sick in the hospital with typhus. But he was arrested um, separately, and she shared that. So... Um, the whole group was arrested and put in prison at the time. But the interesting thing was my father really thought that he was going to die because he knew that they execute uh, a lot of the prisoners or the people that they arrest. But one night he had a dream, and he dreamed of a church and a cross all lit up on, a, on the top of a church, like a church steeple. And, and there was light all around it. And... and and he felt that somehow he was not going to die, he was not going to be executed, and that he was going to be set free. And, and this is where we want to put in the providence of God, how God led our fathers throughout all of their horrific experiences and preserved them. And so anyway, so uh, he was... Uh, not condemned to die, but he was sent to the prison. It was a civilian concentration camp in Nikolai, Ukraine. And I'm going to let uh, Tanya share her part, how her father was arrested when he had typhus. Um, our fathers actually worked together at this printing press. It was kind of a side job for my father, who was teaching at an agriculture school there. But they both were working at this same printing press, um, which, of course, was... At first, the Nazis tolerated them because the Ukrainians were so anti-Stalinist that I think the Nazis considered this kind of helping their cause. But after just six months, then they saw that the Ukrainians were after their own independence and not supportive of the Nazis at all, so they cracked down. And the reason that our fathers were arrested, and they were arrested on the same day, um, was there was one of the men at the newspaper was actually a Nazi informant, so he was both a Ukrainian, but he was getting things from the Nazis. I don't, you know, who knows what that was. But my father, and I think what probably for both of their lives, you always wonder, like, how did they survive? How did they survive? Which is also another miracle that we met, because when our fathers were transported to Buchenwald um, after this civilian prison in Kherson, um, they were standing next to each other. Oksana's father is number 25363, and my father's 25362. And just wow. the fact that both of them survived, um, because so few survived at that location, but not just that they survived, but that Oksana and I would meet is, you know, it's miraculous of miraculous. But my father kind of, he he was very faithful. Obviously, he studied to become a priest. Um, he felt that within him, but throughout his life, which always kind of bugged me, um, I shouldn't say it that way, but puzzled me, was he was always saying how lucky he was, and one of the things that he was lucky for was while he was in Kherson, there must have been an overall typhus outbreak, but he got typhus and was in the hospital when the rest of his cell of the OUN, which was not at the newspaper, they were all shot. And so he was, his life was saved because he had typhus. And then wow. again, when um, Oksana, they both ended up in this prison on Christmas Eve. Because, um, you know, the documentation by the Germans, they document every date and their date. But my father was picked up from the hospital and her father was picked up from his home or I'm not sure how that all progressed, but that they both ended up at the same camp on the same day after being separated um, was also miraculous. And they were there for eight 
months. And it was more, I mean, how can you get more horrendous than the German Nazi concentration camps? But in Russia, they were not regulated by any international, because Stalin would not sign the reciprocal prisoners contract. I forget what year that was, 1929, I think. But so this camp, they were dying, well, probably, you know, how can you compare those things? But it was a very terrible situation for eight months. And then they were transported to Buchenwald um, in freight cars. And whether they rode together or not, you know, you think through all these things now, but then they went into Buchenwald at exactly the same time. And um, Oxana will tell the next the next miracle. <laughs> okay, thank you, Tanya. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little a bit, a bit about the first camp they were both in. It was, as Tanya mentioned, a civilian concentration camp, mostly made up of Russians and Ukrainians. Um, and being a lot of their underground uh, comrades were at this camp. So I believe the reason many of them survived was because they were together and they got support and encouragement from one another. So we know that my father, Valentin, and Oranatol and her father, um, Stepove, that they were together at this place. Now, as she mentioned, they were there eight to nine months. Now, during the winter, they worked 10 to 12 hours a day. And in the summer, they worked 16 hours a day. And basically what they gave them was bread and soup, maybe twice a week. But, however, because it was a civilian concentration camp, they worked in the field, so they were able to salvage potatoes and watermelon to survive. However, three to four prisoners died every day from typhus, exhaustion, and starvation, and there was no medical help available. Well, after the nine months, as Tanya mentioned, they were both transported, and Chapter 3 of my book talks about that, uh, to Buchenwald, and uh, as Tanya mentioned, uh, they, their numbers were side-by-side, side, their prisoner numbers, and this was at the beginning of October in 1943, and they lived in the same block together, Block 63. Uh, it was considered the quarantine section of the little camp, and uh, they were going to only be there temporarily because they were going to transport them as slave labor to the Dora Middlebaum complex. So um, what I just want to share, and uh, Tanya may want to share this, okay, that they got separated after that. I believe Tanya's father was sent to Dora, which is the worst place. They call it the hell of Dora because he worked. And she'll share a little bit of what he suffered there in that underground facility where he built V-1, V-2 rockets for the Nazis, and they did not see the light of day. For, I think it was like for five months they were in total darkness, whereas my father, and we believe the reason this happened was because my father put his profession as a lathe operator and her father put his profession as a teacher. So we believe what they did was because my father had a skill like a lathe operator, they transported him to Julius Schoenbeck, Schoenbeck which also he worked in the underground, but he did not have to sleep in the underground. He actually slept outside of the tunnel. Um, okay, and Tanya, you take it over from there. So I think looking at all the German records, I, I get very caught up in them because it's just fascinating. But look, we were looking at the list because the Germans would list each transport to the different camps. And on the one that indicated that Oksana's father was transported to this first Shinnebeck, there were about probably two-thirds of them indicated lathe operator. And that's something that we discussed, too, is like, did he know that that was a good thing to write down, or was he really skilled in that way? And my dad was kind of a teacher, but he wasn't. And, and I guess the intelligentsia, which, because my father had different educations before he was arrested, um, was really kind of considered worthless because they couldn't work. And so for these work camps, they ended up in the worst conditions. But kind of an interesting little, well, maybe not an aside, but the V-1 and the V-2 missiles were being produced 
in these tunnels at Dora Middlebow. And so for the first six months, they really were building out the tunnels so that they could use them as a factory. Um, and so the men had to live down there too because it saved time and it was easier to make sure they didn't escape. So the death rate there was horrendous, um, both from disease and and a lot of those prisoners ended up with tuberculosis. And, and I think two-thirds of them died before they emerged in the spring um, when they built barracks outside. But all of these, this is another kind of twist that shows that it is important to research these things. Um, my son did, for his junior, when he was a junior in high school, he did his project. Um, he did a timeline comparing Werner von Braun, who is considered the father of our space age, who was yep. the one in charge of building these V-1 and V-2 missiles. Um, my son did a comparison, a timeline of his grandfather and a timeline of Werner von Braun because they were born about the same time. Um, when my dad started theology school, Werner von Braun joined the SS and kind of their progression. Anyway, um, and they both ended up at Dora Middlebow at the same time. And then von Braun was brought to the United States at the end of the war to continue his research. But in doing this research, my son was looking at von Braun, and he found her daughter, who lives 10 miles from us in rural Idaho. We're in a town of 957 people, and his daughter lives 10 miles away. Verna von Braun's daughter? Are you telling me Verna yes. von Braun's daughter lives in Idaho, very close to you? Yes. Yes. Wow. It, and it was just miraculous. And my son um, called her, and with, they did these reports in a group, and um, she talked to them, and they talked mostly. My son was taking a class on jet propulsion in space at that time that was a high school class. And so asked her all these questions about her father, and only at the end of the interview did he mention that, you know, my grandfather was <laughs> building those rockets that your dad huh. created. Um, but what is just miraculous, of course, I I have some feelings of negativity in that direction, but she has been like this wonderful mentor to my son, and she has been the kindest, most wonderful lady um, to him. And I have met her since, and, it, you know, it's it's an odd feeling still, but but the way the world works is incredible. So, What are the odds? It, I, I don't, isn't it amazing? It's just, yeah. Astronomical. Um, yeah, I thought that was – I wanted her to share that because I thought that was amazing that here her father worked in those tunnels for this, uh, his daughter that she met. So I thought it was an amazing connection. Um, and, and I do want to share that it was horrible. The conditions where her father worked was really terrible, um, especially for those five months not being able to see the light of day and, and being beaten. And, of course, my father had the same uh, experience, although he did not have to sleep in the tunnel. So even though um, he lived outside of the tunnels, their hours were extremely long. Uh, they labored very, very hard. And, of course, they got very little sustenance you know, for them to keep up their strength. Now, I wanted to mention after Schoenebeck, they transferred my father along with a bunch, I think there was only 60 of them, to Rotlebaroda, which was called Heinrich. And uh, it was also, he worked in the tunnels there as well, but they lived in a three-story building. The only bad thing was that they had to get up at 3.30 in the morning. They had to march three kilometers uh, to get to the entrance of the caves and then they were down in the caves and it was like about a hundred meters down I think and then they had a labor there all those hours and then once they came up out of the caves they had to march back another three kilometers so uh, beyond me how they found the strength you know to be able to do all that but anyway so the war was coming to an end um, and I want to share my part, and, uh, and uh, Tanya will share her part. And so my father knew that they were starting to evacuate, you know, all the prisoners in the concentration camps. So he was being evacuated 
they called it the death marches where they put him on these marches to go through and uh, they were bringing him to the baggage cars to uh, basically they wanted to eradicate to make sure that there was no vestige or, or no uh, anything that would tie them, you know, to, to killing prisoners in the camp. So uh, my father at that time uh, was able, got on a baggage car, and, and interestingly enough, <clears throat> uh, I think his name was Erhard Brownie was the commander of this Ratla Baroda, and my father was in the same baggage car with him, and later I'll explain how he was a witness at the uh, Nuremberg, the Nord, sorry, the Nordhausen trials, the Dachau, they called it the Dachau Nordhausen trials against this commander. But anyway, uh, eventually my father was able to escape out of through the baggage car, and again, this is all depicted in chapter seven, uh, four to seven in the book, and he escaped and was able to escape into the forest. And then there's another whole chapter, I won't go into it, how he goes through the forest, he, he met a Polish man, and how they went through and how they survived. So um, while he's going through this, Tanya's father, I think, was also in a camp, but she'll explain how he escaped. Um, before I explain his escape, I want to mention something that is very unique about Oksana's book. Um, there's very little written anywhere, and I have just about every book that's been written on this era, about repatriation of Ukrainian and, of course, of Russian prisoners. So there was the Repatriation Act signed by the Roosevelt, Churchill, and I think it was Truman. That, oh, that, that, okay. that happened in 1948. No, this was before. Oh, this was, this before. was before. Okay. But so they decided they made this deal that all prisoners of war would be returned to their countries, which, you know, for some countries in the West, that was great. But what wasn't clear was that any soldier or any person repatriated into Russia, um, if you had been working against the government before, that was kind of your death sentence. They'd send you home and you'd get shot um, or put sent to Siberia. And so in Oksana's book, she describes that even once these people were liberated, once our fathers were liberated from prison, the danger did not stop because they had to separate themselves and try to escape into the West so that they wouldn't be repatriated because, because our fathers were arrested in what was then the Russian zone. When they went into concentration camp, they already stripped them, not of every, you know, basically the whole idea was to strip them of all their identity, but they still kept their nationality, except for in the case of Ukrainians, um, because Ukraine was not recognized as a nation. So when our fathers went in, they both got the R on their paperwork and on their clothes and everything to indicate that they were Russians. So during repatriation, they would have been repatriated to Russia, which would have, um, I won't go into that now, but one of my dad's, well, one of the men that both of our dads worked for, um, he was repatriated. And in 1946 already, the KGB was interrogating him um, and asking about where my father was and what he was doing and if he died in the war or if they could find him. And then after this man, after they had justly interrogated him, they shot him in the head. So it, the twist of that story, if our fathers would have, wouldn't have been um, arrested by the Nazis and Stalin would have got him, they would have been dead. But another little interesting twist, our fathers both went in with the R. My father, and I'm still trying to figure this out because I've met with some of the top people at Dora Middlebow and they haven't seen this before either, but there's paperwork that shows that my father requested in January of 1945, which was when there was an influx. Um, Dora Middlebow was a, quite a different concentration camp than all the rest, not just because it was production-oriented, but it was primarily Eastern Europeans, Russians, Ukrainians, and quite a few French. They were almost all political prisoners. There were virtually no Jews, and there were no women. Up until January of 1945, when Auschwitz, and some of the other eastern camps were invaded by the Red Army, and so they were evacuated in the wake of the Red Army. And so a lot of the Auschwitz prisoners were evacuated to Dora Middlebau, which changed the composition 
of the camp at that time. There were still no women, but then a lot of Jewish prisoners were also transferred there. But in January of 45, my dad requested that his label change from the R to the P so he'd get the Polish designation. So when the war ended, he was considered a Pole. But on some papers, it says stateless. And so his paperwork is very interesting. But whether he did that to, I don't think they knew about the repatriation yet, but um, to the Russians, because also it was a production facility for weapons, there was a lot of sabotage, and the Russians were most prominent at the sabotage, and so they were, a lot of them were caught and hung, and everybody, they caused a lot of trouble in camp, and so it could have been that my dad didn't want to be affiliated with that group, or I'm not really sure what, but it's like how those little subtleties the difference between lathe operator and teacher and the difference between the R and the P and um, made a life or death difference. Um, but the whole repatriation thing, even, and, and Oksana describes this so well in her book, you know, they were still on the run even after they were liberated because they had to escape repatriation, which I'm not sure exactly. My dad just went and worked on a farm because he spoke German. So the other thing that helped him was in his education. He had, he was almost fluent in German because studying theology, he had all the languages, and he went to the gymnasium, and that was they learned German because he was born into the area that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So German was more affiliated with that group, um, which may have helped him survive because he could translate. But so he could work with a farmer when he was escaped. But Oksana's father had to go. I mean, he escaped into Switzerland, and it was very. Yeah, yeah. Let me share that part of the story. Uh, the differences. Tanya very well explained the differences. Um, what I want to share after they were liberated, as Tanya mentioned, um, my father at that point changed his name to Valentin Koval. Um, and uh, at that time also, he had received some bad news that his wife and children were killed, which happened not to be true because they also told his wife that he had been killed in the concentration camp. But 35 years later, and I'll go into that, he found out they were still alive, and I'll go into that story. But anyway, I wanted to mention that on page 66 of the book is where uh, Tanya's father, who I wrote as Stefan, and my father are reunited. They were walking. My father was walking down the street. He heard somebody call his name, and it was Tanya's father, Stefan. So no way. they kind of reconnected at that time. And uh, throughout the book, uh, in, in uh, page in chapter 11, they began to retrace their steps because they were, as she mentioned, were looking for documents. They were stateless. They had no country. So uh, they went together for a while. They went to Buchenwald to search for documents to prove that they were there, but they were not successful. So uh, this whole repatriation thing made it extremely difficult for them um, to know what to do, although Tanya's father spoke German, my father spoke some, but not that well. So my father was was actually going to be living in a DP camp um, because he had no place to go, which is a displaced person camp. And again, the Russians actually went to the Americans and said that they had to force the citizens to to repatriate them, to send them back to their country. So my father was going and trying to explain and get someone to help him interpret that they do not want to be sent back. And he said if they are sent back, they will be executed or they will be put uh, sent to Siberia, but they will not come back alive. So uh, the Americans listened to this, and they decided that they were not going to send back uh, the, the former prisoners. And my father happened to be uh, staying in one of the DP camps. It was in Augsburg, Germany, and it was in the American zone. It was called Same Caserne. So that's where he lived for several years, 
and worked there for uh, as an editor for Ukrainian newspaper uh, because there were many, many Ukrainians that had no place to go because they had no country, so they all lived in these DP camps, many of them throughout Germany. So, um, so because just, of that repatriation issue, this was something that kept them there. Was it in Augsburg then that, that the two met again? No, no. See, what happened after they went to Buchenwald together to search for documents, they went their separate ways and they never saw each other again because Tanya's father did not, uh, he was not at the DP camps. No, no. no. He I mean, before, farms, they went to, so, before they went to Buchenwald together, you said they sort of miraculously ran into each other. Where was that? Okay, that was in, uh, it was actually uh, a city, um, let me see. I think it was in, it's called, it's hard to say it in German, Niederschaffsveren. I think that's where they met. It was uh, okay. at a city near a railroad, I think. And they were wow. both escaping, I think. No, no, they had, this was already after the war. Yeah, this was, I think, in 1945. Uh, I think the latter, kind of in the middle of 1945, they had already uh, been liberated and um, so they met on a street, actually. Uh, my father had his bike, and he was on his bike, he borrowed a bike, and that's where they kind of reconnected. And they did kind of uh, go on another journey. They went to Osterhagen, which is where my father had escaped. That was the station where he had made his escape. So he and Stefan... Uh, Tanya's father, they went to Osterhagen and they ran into some Ukrainians who invited them there uh, for dinner. So they stayed together during that time and then they decided to go to Buchenwald to look for documents. But right. of course, a lot of uh, the documents were destroyed and they couldn't find anything. So that was actually the last time they saw each other. And Tanya will and I will explain, they never reconnected. Well in the United States because they took separate paths. Her father went into forestry. My father stayed in politics. If I could, um, just, uh, if I could just pull this back for a second and yeah. say these two gentlemen survived four years in slave labor camps. Now, most slave labor camp prisoners barely survive months. So True. amazing that these these two gentlemen, both of them, survived that long. And then meeting on a town street, a city street, years later, by chance, again, a mir it's a miracle. The odds of that are just so slim. Unless it just so happened that everybody who was Ukrainian always went through that particular junction on the train or was directed there. It sounds like that wasn't the case. It sounds like this is purely No, no you're accidental. right. It wasn't the case at all. Yeah. So I, did, I just want to point out the... The almost miraculous nature of their their experience, and then their their coming together. It's uh, I'm I'm stunned. I, I never <laughs> I, I'm just speechless. So back to you, since I'm speechless. <laughs> well, it's it's you know what Tanya and I discusses, and we they we say that it can only we can only attribute this to the providence of God because my father was so focused on his mission, which he felt was to fight for freedom, not just for the freedom of Ukraine, although that was his sole focus, but also for the freedom of other captive nations, and I'll get into that uh, once he's in the States. But I did want to mention that um, because my father was stateless, and many times they were trying to get him back to the Russian zone to send him back to Russia, he had to cross the border illegally into Switzerland because he did have relatives in Zurich and the Red Cross, the French Red Cross in Geneva gave documents to stateless people. So they helped him to get to Geneva and he was actually able to get a document from the Red Cross in Geneva that allowed him to go back into Austria and Germany legally. So um, now he had a document where he could travel and not be stopped every time or be threatened with repatriation. 
And in Tanya's case, I think because her ta- Tanya's father, and I'll let her share that, was studying to be a priest, I think she had a very depth to him spiritually. Um, you want to go through that? Yeah. That's what I think just Oxana and I have just had a couple days together, and we kind of have discussed the similarities and differences between our fathers because they had so many similar experiences and in many ways reacted in different ways. Um, my father was really pursuing the Ukrainian Catholic faith strongly, and the war cut it off. But that was also a very, the Ukrainian Catholic Church was very U- independence of Ukraine oriented. So it was also, it was kind of political and religious. And But then he ended up in Munich and went to the university, um, not to the Ukrainian Free University, but to the regular um, I think it's Ludwig Maximilian University. So because he could speak German, he went and he was almost ready to graduate there when he got passage to the United States. And sometime in there, whereas Oksana's father spent the rest of his life fighting for Ukrainian freedom, for freedom for nations, my father, through a series of different events that we'll never know exactly what did it, became either somewhat disillusioned or afraid. His best friend who had been his tutor and that kind of brought him into the organization of United of Ukrainian nationalists um, was very involved. And I, if the more Ukrainian stuff, you know, um, Bandera, who was their leader of this Ukraine, OUN, um, he was assassinated by the Russians in 1968, maybe it was 1961. Anyway, he was in Munich and he stayed there. So the whole Ukrainian, the heart of the Ukrainian nationalist movement outside of Ukraine right after the war was definitely in Munich, and that was kind of a hotbed where my father was. I don't know how involved he was, but his tutor then got, had to do or say or was disappointed with some of the OUN and committed suicide. And I think that was kind of the last straw for my father. Um, When he came to the United States, he went to Syracuse, went to forestry school, was repositioned out to the West Coast, and, you know, he lost his church because we just, we don't have that many Ukrainian Catholics. Um, And so he lost his church. He did not, he hardly had any contact with anyone in the Ukrainian community. So whereas Oksana grew up speaking Ukrainian, going to the, her father founded a Ukrainian youth camp, I was pulling at every little straw to learn more, and, and it really my dad really separated himself completely. So at that point, and, and Oksana's father, which you will go into, um, had not been very religious throughout the war and at the end of his life reached for that comfort or you yeah. take over. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So what, d- during, before my father also immigrated to America, he lived in, in, in two DP camps, displaced persons camps in Germany. The first one was in Augsburg. The second one was in Munich. Now, they, um, some of the American military were going to the DP camps because they were looking for witnesses. So they, my father saw the sign, and he n- recognized the, the, uh, the SS, some of the SS that worked in the camp, the last camp he was in, so they rec- they actually sent out an invitation for him to be a witness at the Nordhausen war crimes trial that was held at the U.S. military court at Dachau in 1947. So he testified against uh, Erhard Brownie, who was a, who was the commander at Rob Baroda, the last camp he was in, and two others, Walter Ulbrich and Paul Meishine. So he was a witness. And there was only actually two, him and another Polish man that were witnesses because they had killed everybody from those camps when they transported them to Gardelagen, put them in a barn, and burned them all. So um, he was a witness, and they were sentenced. Earnhardt Brownie died of leukemia, and the other two, I think, only got five years. But anyway, my father, after this, at the end of 1949, uh, when Truman passed that um, the Spice Person Act, he was able to come to America. And unlike Tanya's father, he reconnected with the Ukrainian community. He moved to New York City. He became very active. 
he in the political. Oh, he that? didn't just reconnect. He was a leader. Well, actually, whole. right. He, he was a leader in the Ukrainian community uh, between the 50s and 80s. He started his own publication. He was the editor, Mission of Ukraine, uh, which was a division of the Association for the Liberation of Ukraine. It, it goes on and on. And he was an, a Ukrainian-American Journalist Association. He also became involved in a, a group called Americans to Free Captive Nations. And this... Uh, Captive Nations Week was signed into law by President Eisenhower in 1959. I didn't know this, and every successive U.S. president has declared the third week of July to be Captive Nations Week, and that's also in my book in Chapter 17. Now, one thing I do want to mention you might find interesting was that um, he was the co-founder of the Ukrainian American Youth Associations in the 50s in New York, and one of the first rallies they held was upstate New York, on August 14, 1954, and I found an actual copy of a telegram they received from President Dwight D. Eisenhower, and this is what it said. It said, thank you for informing me of the mass rally, which will be held by the Ukrainian American Youth Association on August 14th and 15th, and I am happy to send warm greetings to you and to all members of your organization who, through participation in this rally, are giving expression to their support of freedom and their opposition to the aggressive policies of communism. And may your rally be a successful and happy one for all, Dwight Eisenhower. And, of course, this was during the Cold War. So they were actively staging protests and all kinds of things during that period. Now, some of the slogans at some of these events were salute to a struggling Ukraine and the non-Russian peoples of the USSR are struggling, not only for the removal of the communist regime, but likewise for complete separation from Moscow. So this was kind of his focus um, when he came back, whereas Tanya's father went into forestry, he kind of was in a remote area whereas we lived kind of in the middle of everything, obviously New York City. Um, every, there were so many things going on. There's so many activities and events, you know, where you can participate, you know, in, in a lot of these, uh, f the fighting, you know, against communism, which at that point was uh, very strong in our country. Um, now, I did want to mention that, my father found out in the late 70s, early 80s, that his first wife and children were alive. They hadn't died. A woman that he knew went, who lived in Ukraine went there and was able to track him down. And when she knocked on the door of the apartment and his wife opened it, they'd only been married four years, and she had remarried and my father had remarried, she fainted, literally. And um, I had the opportunity to go and meet them all in the 1990s to Ukraine. So I met, uh, I met my half-brother, my half-sister, and my stepmother. And my father began corresponding with them, and they sent photos. And he invited them to come to this country, but they were afraid because the Cold War then was very prevalent, and it was still going on. Uh, and I wanted to mention, too, uh, in the middle 60s, my father had joined forces with, uh, he was called Reverend Carl McIntyre. He was a very fiery radio preacher who spoke at some of their American to Free Captive Nations rallies. Now, this McIntyre, who had opposed Nazi uh, Nazism and anti-Semitism, he became a champion of anti-communism. And my father was involved with him for a while, and one of the things that he said, uh, that McIntyre argued that although America had once honored God and freedom, it was in danger of losing its heritage. On his radio program, McIntyre often repeated the slogan, freedom is everybody's business, your business, my business, the church's business, and a man who will not use his freedom to defend his freedom does not deserve his freedom. Um, so I'll sum up a few things, and then I'll have Tanya sum up a few things. I, I did want to mention that in the latter part of my father's life, he became very spiritual. Um, he 
was very well respected uh, politically in his community. Uh, people would come to him to advice. He, he would always be speaking at rallies or, or meetings. And towards the end, I'd say maybe in the middle 80s uh, or actually beginning of the 80s, he realized that man is a spiritual being and made after the image of God and created to have fellowship with him. So he made that leap of faith to put his trust in Christ and accepted him into his life. He actually developed a strong faith, started reading the Bible, and began to see how throughout his life how God's providence directed him through, through all the things that he suffered. And, and when his political friends would visit him, they recognized that my father had a new dimension to his personality, that not only did he fight for freedom in the political sense, but he also literally became free in the spiritual sense. And, and that brought he and I even closer together, and we shared many things. We went to church together. My father started reading the Bible. So it was like my father went through this metamorphosis and, and became the man that he was meant to be. And, and I, I really respect him and honor his memory because of what he did and how and the the decisions that he made and i'll let tanya take over um i love the way that oxana ended her book with the seven principles that she thought were the most important to her father because it it's kind of you know just having someone to debate those with or not debate but so i went through to see what i thought my father what helped him to survive and his was he just carried no resentment I think when I mean my mother his first wife was Ukrainian and she died in childbirth shortly after they came to the United States so he lost everything again but my mother um, is of German descent my dad was working in a town that was 15 miles well when he was in concentration camp 15 miles from where my great aunts um, and my grandfather grew up so a lot of more twists there but um, I think my father's faith in God remained and stayed very strong, but he loved America above. He knew every single president. He was in reforestation, um, and so he would say, he went to the Roman Catholic Church, even though that's somewhat different from Ukrainian Catholic, but he'd always just say, I'm going out to pray to my trees, which I believe he really did. But his way, he wanted to give back to the United States. It was always, I owe this country my freedom and and I think by planting millions of trees throughout the Pacific Northwest in areas that I, I not that this is a correlation that I draw just because I think it's a great poetic correlation, but um, he was used to rebuilding his life. He had to start over several times from nothing and reforesting areas that had been devastated by burns. He kind of got the reputation of being able to grow trees where nothing would grow and where everything was devastated by either drought or mostly by fire. Um, it's kind of, he could understand that because he'd survived it. But his will to live and and be grateful for everything that he had was really what kept him going and what I so admire and no resentment in his life. But wow. anyway, to sum it up, um, as you could see, the differences between my father and Tanya's father, and they, and they were both wonderful men in their own right. And I think in my father's case, through his suffering, it just solidified his desire to continue to fight for the freedom of Ukraine and other captive nations more than ever um, because of what he went through and how he suffered. And I think for Tanya's father, I think had a, at the time had a more spiritual side to him um, had kind of a, a God outlook in the sense that he was a forgiving man. And even though my father didn't speak much about what he went through, he didn't dwell on it, I think because he was involved so much in, in his political activities and all the things that he did, but I think in the end, I think Tanya's father and my father kind of came to the same uh, kind of crossroads in their life because I feel that um, my father, uh, even though he was a captive 
for several years as Tanya's father was. Uh, but in the end, both men, I think, became free. They were liberated, I believe, by the power of Christ, O oh God, because um, of what they suffered, but because they realized that there is a power greater than themselves, that a God is sovereign, he is a God of providence, and how he leads and guides us. And sometimes we make decisions that we don't even know why we make these particular decisions, but somehow he's guiding us or he's leading us, oh God, into the right path. And I just want to share, and then Tanya can sum up her part. I just want to read, which I think is so apropos, in chapter 61 of Isaiah, in the beginning, chapter 1, where it says, um, he, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And I feel our fathers, in a sense, were liberated, Father, not only physically, but spiritually as well. And in their bondage, I feel that they somehow found meaning, at least my father did, and I'm sure Tanya's also did as well, um, as a result of their suffering, it all the more solidified their desire to move forward and to accomplish what I feel they both did w with the, whatever life was allowed to them before they died. All right. We have just a couple minutes left, Oksana and Tanya. This has been remarkable. And I just wanted to ask a couple questions before we go. Okay. Uh, Tanya, Tanya, this uh, this side of the story is just as fascinating, and I know some of it's covered in Oksana's book, but obviously not the whole story. So um, I'm curious if you have any plans to write about your father. I actually am in process, but this has spurred me on tremendously because I'm kind of that eternal researcher, and I've been researching and researching and researching, but the past year my son went to college, and I've started writing and meeting Oksana and reading her book and, you know, just having, there are very few people that are in Oksana and my position as survivors, children that are not Jewish, um, which right. when my father hit the last year of his life, I'll try to make it quick, but he relived his concentration camp days and it was awful. He lived with me. And so things he never told me about, I witnessed because he was reliving it. Um, and that makes you feel very alone. For me, I'm, I'm sure it was for him, but meeting Oksana kind of gives me the hope, knowing that my dad had a friend going through that, just knowing that her dad was there has given me this huge comfort. But it's also spurred me along with my writing. So I've, I've got a few chapters done. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it really, um, well, but I'm working on it. Be sure to contact me when you're ready. And I wanted to say, you know, recently we're seeing a number of these manuscripts coming out. My former German teacher, uh, Helga Rist, who's in her 90s, she wrote her experience of being a, a prisoner, a political prisoner in, in, uh, when the Russians came and kept them in prison camps. And so uh, it's called The Blood Letter. And it's, it's somewhat of a similar wow. story, some overlap. Uh, we're down and to just a couple of minutes. Alive? Yes, she's still alive, and I still send her royalty checks every quarter. So, uh, How wonderful. We are out of time. Oksana Lapchuk and Tanya Vatovic, uh, thank you very much for a remarkable account of your father's uh, back during World War II and afterwards. It's miraculous the way they survived and interacted. Uh, it's just a stunning tale. And thank and you for joining the sun. Thank you, everybody, for joining the Sunbury Press Book Show. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak yeah. Network. Be Excuse sure to my, check out our I books at www.sunburypress.com or search for our titles on Amazon, yeah, Barnes & Noble, yeah. and other booksellers worldwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are hundreds more available on the BookSpeak Network. You can find our channel on blogtalkradio.com. Thank you for listening.
With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.